0: good morning again welcome if you're joining us for the first time i'm grateful to be with you in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit amen let me show you a picture on the guy on the left you probably know who that is um that's chuck berry um it's not been my proudest moment in parenting, but I, I did recently introduce my three children to a song of his that shall remain nameless, <clears throat> and because I thought it would be sort of clever and they would move right on by. Um, it lingered. <clears throat> so I am not proud of that, so I come for my own form of private confession to you all. Um, guy on the left, you know. The guy on the right, you might be, a, you might be familiar with him, um, because there's been sort of a uh, meteoric climb in his uh, notoriety in the last couple of years. The guy on the right is named Daryl Davis. And um, anybody that's playing with Chuck Berry, you know, has got skills. And he does. And he's been playing for 40 years. And he played with Chuck Berry for a very long time, who died last year. And uh, he learned a lot from Jerry Lee Lewis. Um, so Daryl Davis knows his keyboard. He knows his music. But um, what's caused Daryl Davis's name to kind of um, rise in a familiarity over the last few years has absolutely nothing to do with music. It has everything to do with what started in a in a bar in Maryland called the Silver Dollar Lounge, which was a mostly kind of a white only kind of place. Um, and here's a black man in a country western gig that um, during uh, a break in one of their sets, uh, he heads over to the lounge and this white guy comes up to him, puts his arm around him and he says, man, I have never heard a black man play that kind of music before. That's all Jerry Lee Lewis stuff. And Daryl Davis looks at him just kind of, you know, kindly and says, you know where Jerry Lee Lewis learned that kind of music, right? And he goes, yeah, Jerry Lewis came up with that kind of stuff. And Daryl says, no, man, no, no, Jerry Lee Lewis learned that from black uh, jazz and, and black rockabilly and all that stuff like that. And 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 the guy says, no, you're crazy. And he goes, no, no, it's true. That's where he learned it. I, that's, I know this music. And he goes, all right, fine. Well, let me at least help you buy, let me buy you a drink. And, and, uh, Daryl says, okay. And so they sit down there and, um, this guy looks at him and he says, I'll have to tell you, this is the first time I ever sat down with a black man, and had a drink. And Daryl Davis says, well, my goodness, what a day of firsts for you. Um, <clears throat> now, now, why, why, sir, is it that you have never sat down with a black man to have a drink before? And, um, the guy's buddy looks at him and he says, tell him. And the guy just sort of looks away for a while and is silent until finally Daryl says, why is it, man? And, and the guy says, because I'm a member of the Ku Klux Klan. And Daryl says, you're kidding me. No, I am. It's that encounter and experiences from Daryl Davis' childhood that has led him to engage people like this in the Ku Klux Klan for 25 years. Sitting with them, talking with them, listening to them, sharing with them, becoming their friend. Becoming their friend. And what he's doing in moments like that, he is asking himself a question. Why do you hate me when you don't even know me? Why do you hate me when you don't even know me? That's the question he puts to anybody that he gets an audience with who's a member of the Ku Klux Klan. And for 25 years, you might say, Daryl Davis has been about the business of reconciliation. Now, in this context, that reconciliation is actually far greater than just between a black man and a white person who thinks black people are subservient or, sub, uh, or inferior to him. This kind of reconciliation is reconciliation to a deeper kind of truth. Reconciliation to a way of seeing things. And in that light, and in that example, I think it is a perfect introduction for what we are talking about today. Because if you're just joining us, During the season of Advent, we are listening to the story of Jonah, which for some of you thought, wait, what? Why would you do that? I'll tell you why. Because both Jonah and Jesus, whose birth we celebrate, were commissioned to enter into territory that was very unwelcome, to say the least. That's a euphemism. But like Jonah, when you and I, Consider the prospect of entering into reconciliation with those who find God distasteful or dismiss him outright. We, we find that whole project, shall we say, problematic, just like Jonah did. And so this story is perfect for Advent. In the chapter that we're looking at this morning, chapter three, Jonah pretty much recedes into the background. But what comes to the foreground is, if you will, one climax of the whole story. And that climax has everything to do with reconciliation. And we're going to listen to both Jonah's story and Daryl Davis's story simultaneously that we might learn a few things about the nature of God's reconciliation, both from him and with him. That's our task. Three things about reconciliation from Jonah chapter 3. If you're able, I wonder if you might stand to hear this part of the story. <clears throat> Jonah chapter 3. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. And then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh. He arose from his throne, removed his robe And turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did. How they turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he didn't do it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. If you are not familiar with this story or if you need to be caught up, what happens Jonah has been commissioned to a work by God, and that was to go to Nineveh, which is not exactly like going to Charlotte. To go to Nineveh was to be called to go to the place that Israel most hated and loathed and feared because Nineveh was part of the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire is the one that had overrun Israel and occupied it, subjugated it, dominated it, and said, you will survive only if you pay us an annual tribute. And God says to Jonah, go there. Go talk to them, not to vilify them, not to demonize them, not to dehumanize them, but to warn them, to warn them of their wickedness, to warn them of their violence, to warn them that God sees. And in that warning is no hatred. In that warning is regard. Jonah hears that commission and says, no, thank you. I will not go. He bolts. He goes AWOL. He goes AWOL on a boat. And there on the boat, he gets caught in a trap, a trap laid by God. He puts a storm in the boat's way because God sometimes has to say to us, I will not take your no for an answer. And to that, Jonah, he says, and the only way for that boat to survive, Jonah concludes, is for those men to throw him overboard. And so he is thrown overboard, and the storm subsides, and he begins to sink. And if you have seen that final scene of that Robert Redford film, All is Lost, when he is marooned for months on that boat, he has to actually fall overboard, and his boat capsized before him. He has to be sinking as if to drown before he'll be saved. It's Jonah's story. Jonah has to lose it all. Jonah has to think he's on his way to Sheol, unto the life of the dead, In order to be rescued. And he is. But inside of a fish. A fish delivers him. Are you kidding me? And there inside the fish. Jonah has a little bit of illumination. He discovers a few things. About the nature of God's salvation. And though his salvation. His deliverance is certainly from a physical harm like death. He discovers that God's salvation. Actually reads deeper into a deeper place. Namely his own soul. That's where we are in the story. And when Jonah gets that. God realizes, I think you get it at which point Jonah is puked out of the fish, and here we are in chapter three. and how does God, how does God respond to this moment now that, that Jonah is cleaning himself up from the whale puke? <clears throat> God could have said to Jonah, "All right, you bolted i 'm going to bench you now. You are clearly not fit for the task to which you were commissioned. He doesn 't say that. God says to Jonah, "Get up, let 's try this again." Go to Nineveh, tell them what I want you to tell them. And so he goes. He's going to warn. And implicit within that warning is this idea. That even though Nineveh is largely unacquainted with God, the God of Israel, they're still accountable to him. He still has a sovereign hand over all things, all creatures, and all their actions. And they're accountable to that. And that's implicit within the warning. But also implicit is that given what God believes about life, about dignity, and about peace, that Nineveh's violence and wickedness will not stand. It cannot stand. That's what's implicit within the warning. You listen to Daryl Davis' story. There's a wonderful documentary about his story called An Accidental Courtesy. Thank you, Mr. Dotson. I wouldn't have known it without you. That story... Daryl says, I'm never trying to convert anybody to my way, but yeah, you know what, <clears throat> you know what you do every time you sit down with somebody that's in member of the KKK, you know what you're doing, Daryl, every time you invite them to one of your gigs so they can hear your music and appreciate it, you know what you're doing, Daryl, when you invite them into your house to have dinner at your table, you're implicitly saying, dudes, you're accountable to a higher truth than just what I want you to believe, you're accountable to something deeper. And what Daryl Davis is doing is creating the space in which reconciliation might begin. And I think what Daryl Davis illustrates is what we're, the first thing that we're meant to learn by God reinstating Jonah to this commission. And it's this. God loves to commission reluctant prophets to his work of reconciliation. That God is unrelenting in his commitment to commissioning reluctant people to the ministry of reconciliation to enter into that. You might kick, you might scream, you might spit, you might seethe. He doesn't care. He's inviting you to that. And he loves to do it. He loves to do it. He is pressing this issue of reconciliation with Jonah because he has regard for Nineveh being reconciled to himself. But he is pressing the issue with Jonah. With Jonah. Underscore Jonah. Jonah. Because he's pressing the issue with Jonah to insist upon the privilege of being invited into the work of reconciliation, to be invited into the ministry of reconciliation. That's Jonah's privilege, that's Israel's privilege, that's anybody who takes refuge in God, that's their privilege. Do you see why we're listening to Jonah during Advent? I know we are all rightly marveling at the fact that God becomes man. He is incarnated in the flesh. That's what it means. But the greater marvel is that by this man, by this God-man, we are reconciled to God through his blood. And those reconciled are invited into that same work. Derivative. By word and deed. They're not the means to it, but they're ambassadors of it which sounds a lot like what Paul says to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 5, and he says this about himself. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Paul's saying, look, we used to think of others in a certain way. That's what he means by according to the flesh. But he doesn't regard them in that way anymore. And what he means is, I do not think of others as others might define them. I do not think of others as they might prefer to define themselves. Instead, I think of them according to what Christ has told me about them. Namely, that he would have died for them. And when you think of someone in that regard, you can't but hold them to a kind of respect and dignity that you might not otherwise do. If you go watch that documentary in accidental courtesy, Daryl Davis, you will hear him be roundly chided for his approach of making friends with Ku Klux Klan members. They will say to him and cuss at him saying, you are making friends with the enemy. You are wasting time. There are better things to be doing. To fix this. To restore equality to this world. You are making friends with racist pigs. You know what he's doing? Daryl Davis. Every time he invites a man to sit at his table. Who believes in white supremacy. Is only saying this. I am not thinking of you according to the flesh. I am not thinking of you as other people might want to define you. I am not thinking of you as you might prefer to define yourself. I am thinking of you as having a dignity that is bestowed upon you by God alone. And I will speak to you and warn you, if only that you might be reconciled to a higher truth. God loves to invite reluctant prophets into his work of reconciliation because he's committed to it clearly. Now, I know we're talking a lot about racial reconciliation kind of as a, as a to piggyback on what we mean by it. So first of all, let's back up a little bit and say, what does it mean to be reconciled to God? <clears throat> That's the second thing I want to talk about. What are the indubitably gracious marks of being reconciled to God? And to, to set that up, let me kind of set you up with what happens to Jonah here by way of an illustration that you might be familiar with. Um, if you have children in your life or if you teach them, um, you might have experienced the phenomenon of uh, skewed messaging. And by that, I mean, um, if you can imagine a scenario, entirely hypothetical, where um, one parent says to one of the children, go tell your sister that if she is not down here in five minutes, she will be in trouble. There's the message to be conveyed. The sibling thus commissioned traipses upstairs, opens the door, and says said message. Mom says you're in trouble. Like that's it. Like that's all that got across. The, the conditional nature of the message somehow between first floor and second floor becomes an unconditional message of judgment. Jonah goes to Nineveh and he was instructed with the task. Go call out against their wickedness. Check. Jonah walks into Nineveh a day, and what does he say to the Ninevites? You guys are dead! (laughs) 40 days? Nothing! You are nothing, man! Now, some people who think more charitably of Jonah think, you know what, that's just sort of a summarized report of his message. But as you will listen in chapter 4 next week, you'll think, no, no, I think we have here this phenomenon of skewed messaging. Jonah, Jonah has a dog in this hunt. And Jonah means to get that across. And... That might be interesting to those of us that find it comical, but I tell you, the first time that anybody heard this story, if you're an Israelite, Nineveh's response would have made you go, what? Because Nineveh doesn't chafe, they don't spit, they don't seethe, they don't run Jonah out on a rail. It says in verse 5, Nineveh trusted this word from God. (laughs) What? They got it. They were persuaded by it. And they were so persuaded by it, they entered into those kind of ritual traditions that you find very often in the Old Testament when somebody comes into a deeply difficult moment of true learning. It says the town, by its own initiative, took it upon themselves to declare fast. Nobody eats or drinks, not even the cattle. And the cattle were thinking, what did we do? Nobody eats or drinks. Everybody puts on sackcloth. I've never worn sackcloth, but I know I can imagine what sackcloth feels like. It feels itchy. It feels scratchy. It feels uncomfortable. It's the kind of clothing where you always know it's on you. Now, why? Very deliberate, very concrete acts on the part of Nineveh. Why Why do that as a response to saying that they believed this word from Jonah, from God? Why, Why do that? Let me give you an example about why they might declare a fast. Um, the guy's name is Austin Cleon. He's an author in Austin, Texas. I don't think he's named after the city, but, um, he's a wonderful author. And I, I really think he puts a lot of us to shame by the way he stewards his time. It's really lovely. But in his family, he's got some small kids. They have a tradition in their family that, um, if any time a child is just out of sorts, just ballistic, belligerent, can't be consoled. Um, they hand that child pen and paper to invite them to write down what they think the problem is. And so one day, he's on a walk with his kid in the park, and the kid is just inconsolable, just just won't shut up, right? And so, per tradition, they hand said child a pen and paper. And the child scribbles down what he thinks is the problem. And this is what happened. This is what came out, that. <clears throat> um, for those of you that can't decipher four-year-old hysterical writing, um, what the four-year-old write was this. The problem is not me. The problem, whatever this problem is, not me. It's you people. It's this world. I'm having an existential crisis. It's not me. Guess where the beginning of reconciliation begins? But guess where the first mark of reconciliation is? It is an acknowledgement that there is something deep within us. That the problem is with me. Now, it is not to say that everything that befalls you, brothers and sisters and welcome guests, is because of you or your fault. I'm not saying that. Joan is not saying that. Jesus is not saying that. But when it comes to being reconciled to God, the first thing is to acknowledge, to reckon with, is that the problem is with me. Anne Lamott, you might know her. She said this. We live in darkness. People know this by the time they turn 21. And if they don't, they are seriously disturbed. If you think your biggest problem is everything on the outside, it's time for new learning. It's time for new learning. One of the people that has met with uh, Daryl Davis, he acknowledged a great deal of things in his past that would account in large part for his hatred of black people. But there came a point in his own sojourn when he looked himself in the mirror and realized, the problem is within me. And that's where reconciliation begins. There. And that's why Nineveh proclaims a fast. Because what does a fast mean? It's self-denial. It's saying, I, I'm the problem. I am not going to indulge this same self that is the self that is the problem. It begins there. And they don't just proclaim a fast. They also put on sackcloth. Why would they do that? Because sackcloth is an expression of mourning. When Abner dies, King David follows the bier, the casket, but not before he puts on sackcloth to express his sorrow. It's what they do. It's what you do when you're mourning because you want to allow your body to feel the affliction, to teach you something in your heart. The first mark of beginning reconciliation is reckoning that the problem is with the self. And the second part that goes along with it is a mournfulness of that self. A mournfulness of the condition that is so deep-seated within you that you can't just sort of rub off like dead skin. But that it goes so deep within you that you don't know what you're going to do if change is ever going to happen. And you know what? Paul speaks to that phenomenon too. He talks about a godly kind of sorrow also in 2 Corinthians 9 where he says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. He's talking about a very credible, real-world, concrete example where the church in Corinth was was committing these deeds and and they were called out on the carpet for it and they began to mourn for what was deep within them. That's, That's a mark of being reconciled to God, where you are not just aware that the problem is within you, but that you are sorrowful over it. That's how reconciliation works. And that's why Nineveh is wearing sackcloth. But I, I hope you noticed that before. as soon as the, the city proclaims this fast and puts on sackcloth, what does the king do? It says in verse 9 of chapter 3, he rose from his throne, removed his robe, and covered himself with sackcloth. He, he removed his robe. What, what's, what's with that? What did his robe signify? He's king. His robe conveyed authority. His robe signified majesty. That's why they call him the king. And he says, I can't wear this anymore. I have to acknowledge that there is a greater authority. There is a greater majesty. And so I take off that robe and I put on this sackcloth that I might be afflicted by my sin. Folks, Daryl Davis, when he sits down with Ku Klux Klan members, at first they sit and he just lets them talk. Their story, their rationale for why they do what they do. And then in time, if the conversation matures, Daryl Davis gets a chance to sort of talk where he's coming from. And you can hear testimonies from some of these Ku Klux Klan members who in time so begin to understand Daryl that they begin to speak with respect for him. And not just in private. They'll start speaking with respect for Daryl among their own little white supremacist ilk. But Daryl Davis knows that something has clicked, that the penny has dropped, that something has shifted when on one occasion for the very first time he sat down with one of those guys and they came to him without the robe on. In fact, the guy came to him and handed him his robe and said, I used to wear this, but I can't wear it anymore. That it once represented where I am, but it no longer represents who I am. And so I give it to you. And Daryl Davis has collected 25 of these robes. One person at a time. Simply because he created a context in which the mark of reconciliation might come to fruition. Where people begin to reckon with themselves and they begin to mourn with the condition of themselves and then they begin to feel a new desire to be a different self. And they take off those robes because they no longer represent who they are. That is an indubitably gracious mark of reconciliation. They didn't manufacture it. They weren't coerced into it. It just became part of them. And all of that happened before they did a thing about changing their behavior. They didn't clean themselves up to be reconciled. The reconciliation came from, if you will, from somewhere deeper and higher because that's the nature of reconciliation. Now, I know I'm talking a lot about how racial reconciliation happens, and that's a worthy topic for our consideration, but let me just speak to you about another story about how reconciliation works when it comes to being reconciled with God in his grace. This guy, his name is Guillaume Bignon, a Frenchman, in case you weren't sure. Grows up in a nominal Catholic family, totally repudiates that in young adulthood, says that's yeah. Um moving on, right? Um he begins to show great aptitude and um proficiency in both music and athletics. Becomes really good at volleyball. So good at volleyball, he um he gets invited to become on this this club team that represents France as a nation. He gets, gets to travel all over France, all over the world. I mean, he just really excels at that. Um he's on vacation with a buddy in the Caribbean. And they're like on their carrying their knapsacks, walking up a road, and up drives this vehicle with two cute American girls in it, who say to him, "Hey, um, we're lost. Can you help us find such and such?" And uh, Guillaume looks at them and he goes, "Why, sure, ladies. Can we have a ride, right?" And uh, they say, "Sure." So uh, he gets in the car, and um, by Guillaume Bion's own admission, um, the first thing on his mind about these young girls is of course not to discuss the merits of the political diplomacy acumen of charles de gaulle but to get close and you know does what he did until the one of the girls says um thanks no i'm flattered but i'm a christian and that's just i don't do that thank you at which point, Guillaume Bion, he says, I, I love a good challenge. So he starts to try to disabuse her of her faith, saying it's totally ridiculous. And why do you do that? And you have such arcane views of sexuality. What's, what's the deal? And she goes, um, thank you. I appreciate the time. Um, here's where you get off. <clears throat> Around that time, just because he's curious, he, he picks up a Bible that he hasn't picked up in decades. And he, and he gives this sort of muted, almost uh, perfunctory prayer saying, all right, God, if you're there, here's your word. If you're real, why don't you reveal yourself to me? That's it. Two weeks later, his shoulder goes out for no apparent reason. Not a collision. Um, goes to the doctor. Can't explain why the shoulder goes out. The The therapy sessions aren't doing any good. He, he can't get back into the rotation. And so his coach says, I can't do anything. I got to bench you. And because they played on Sundays, now he has his Sundays free. So what does he do? He, he steps into a, a church um, one morning, and by his own words, sort of like people that go to the zoo to see exotic animals. He thought the experience would be something like that. And uh, he goes there, sits at the service, doesn't hear a word, the preacher says. I mean, can you relate? Um, <clears throat> why are they laughing at that? Doesn't hear a word. Um, sort of surreptitiously heads for the exit because you know those people, they like to greet one another with the peace of the Lord, right? Um, and uh, hits the door and then says to himself, this is ridiculous. I, I, something came over. I got to figure this out. So he seeks out the pastor and just says, can we talk? And and for the next several days and weeks, he asks him every question about faith and things like that. And, and in that season, Guillaume Bionian says, I began to feel the weight of my own history and the weight of my own heart and it was odious to me and at that same time, he began to grapple with the person of Jesus. And in time, he becomes reconciled to the fact that he's a sinner, but that he has been saved by who the one that's come to rescue us all at Christmas. And by his own words, Guillaume Bion said this, I wasn't looking for God. I neither sought him nor wanted him. He reached out, loved me while I was still a sinner, broke my defenses, and decided to pour out his undeserved grace. It's a story. It's a story of reconciliation. And when anybody ever uses the word grace, undeserved almost becomes a redundant way of characterizing it because there is no grace that's deserved, right? Otherwise, you wouldn't call it grace. Grace is both unexpected and undeserved. That's grace defined. And if you might have been listening to what the king of Nineveh says in verses 8 and 9, let me refresh your memory. He says, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. What does that that convey? That Though this message to Nineveh is that there may be a relenting from disaster, there's no guarantee that a true mark of one's reconciliation with God is the total absence of presumption. Neither in Guillaume Bignon and certainly not in the king of Nineveh. Was there any presumption that, hey, God apparently has forgiven in the past? I'm sure He'll forgive right now. There's no presumption, but that gets us to the third part of what we learn about God's reconciliation. Yes, He loves to bring reluctant prophets into that work, and yes, there are indubitably gracious marks of that reconciliation. But a third thing comes from what happens in verse 10, which when the 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 um, the, um, the king of Nineveh says, "Who knows?" Uh, If you want to liken that to a basketball game where the the center throws up a shot from mid-court as time goes out, um, you don't know if it's going to be a brick or if it's going to do nothing but net. Who knows? Verse 10 confirms what happens. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he didn't do it. In other words, nothing but net. God had sent Jonah to warn, God had sent Jonah to get their attention, Nineveh hears, Nineveh reckons, Nineveh sorrows, Nineveh turns, and God stands down. And a lot of scholars and other theologians and people that kind of maybe look with a, a sort of a jaded eye towards the Bible think that, that God's portrayal in the Old Testament is one of big cosmic bully. That like takes a little pleasure in threatening people with destruction. And he kind of gets juiced by that. Like he likes to throw his weight around like that. And to which I might just say, man, Jonah 3. He warned, to be sure. But he seems to take a lot greater pleasure in the fact that they're reconciled to him. Because he didn't wait. He didn't make them stew. He didn't pause and say, ha, let's see if they'll simmer a little while. And feel a little uneasy. And then maybe I'll, I'll relent from my disaster. He just did it. What does that teach us? That God is unhesitating in his promise to bring reconciliation to those who want it. Unhesitating. Jonah is in many ways like the story that Jesus tells about the two sons that we like to call the parable of the prodigal son. That younger son who, like Jonah, says, I live in your house. I know your way. I'll have none of it. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm gone. And they go to a far country, whether it's eating with pigs, pods, or be on a boat. They both think they know. And then both of them, in some ways, come to their senses, and they start to head back. And that younger son works out his talking points, what I'm going to say to my father. And before he can finish the speech, the father runs to him in his robes and holds him in his embrace and says, go kill the calf, boys. We're going to have a party. He didn't hesitate. He didn't hesitate. Because that promise of reconciliation is one that he offers unhesitatingly. It's just like what Paul is telling us again one last time in 2 Corinthians 9. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. And therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's your hope. That's your joy. That's your reconciliation to which you've been invited to become a witness of also. What it means is, especially there in the last verse, in verse 21, God sends his son Who had no appearance or taste for sin, but was dressed as one who was drenched in sin. He put on that robe so that you and I might have our robe of sin taken from us and be clothed in a robe of righteousness that came at the cost of his own blood. That's the gospel. That's our reconciliation. That's the substance of our joy to which we must fight to remember. That's the nature of reconciliation. Church, this is a passage in Jonah 3 about hope. The Last Jedi is a story about hope. Jonah 3 is a passage about hope. A hope in God's power to work reconciliation with those who either dismiss him or even despise him. It's hope that he might actually exercise that power through those who might even believe that's true. Even feebly. For 20 years, Daryl Davis has been receiving one after another robes and hoods from those who have come to see their error. And what he's learned from those encounters over 20 years is this: Find someone who disagrees with you and invite them to your table. Give them a platform. Then you challenge them, but you don't challenge them rudely or violently. You do it politely and intelligently, and when you do things that way, chances are they will reciprocate you and give you a platform. And from his own experience, he remembers. He and I would sit down, listen to one another over a period of time, and the cement that held his ideas together began to get cracks in it. And then it began to crumble, and then it fell apart. Only because he entered into their world. Only because he entered into sort of a ministry of a form of reconciliation. All because he wanted to get an answer to his question. How can you hate me when you don't even know me? Now I know I've talked a lot about racial reconciliation. And if that's all you come away with this, that's fine. It's good. A topic worthy to be explored. But I hope that you are seeing that picture, that analogy, in the wider context. Because in listening to Daryl Davis and listening to Jonah 3, we are ask, God is asking us to hope in a greater reconciliation. Because if Daryl can ask the question, how can you hate me when you don't even know me? I think for us, the question becomes to somebody to whom we might invite to our table. How can you dismiss this reconciling God? If you can barely account for him. How can you hate this God? When you perhaps don't even know him. You can probably come up with a better question that's tailored to the person with whom you might have a relationship or be in converse with. But that's the question we're ultimately trying to ask in love that we might invite to our table. Look, God did invite people to his table. And even though Jesus considered them friends, they were still going to be in need of that same blood that he would expend for those that considered Jesus to be worthy of death. Same blood, same condition, same need, regardless of your, uh, your attitude towards who he is. He invited them to his table. And at that table, he spoke of a reconciliation that was soon to come. Because on that night, as they were eating supper, he takes bread and he breaks it and he says, this is my body and it's for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way then, he took that cup and after supper he blessed it and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink it as often as you will in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Christ is our Passover lamb. He was slain that we might be reconciled to God and might find the ministry of reconciliation not a burden but a privilege. And therefore, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. Hallelujah. This table is for sinners. This table is for those who believe they need the reconciliation of God that comes from Jesus. If that describes you, not that you are worthy of the reconciliation, but that you are needful of it. If that describes you, this table is for you. If you are not yet sure whether that truth is truth, I invite you to sit and reflect, to consider, not that we might single you out, but only so that you might have time to consider the possibility that it is true that in him your sins are forgiven, and he not just simply tolerates you, but that he delights in you.